When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want everybody to know that the press has not been speaking properly about how great this is going to be. They have not been giving it a fair press. The press is, well, as you know, in many cases, I call it the fake news. It's fake news. This is going to be great for people. I think Trump has decided that he is a tide to the mast of this Ryan ship. But Obamacare is dead. It's a dead health care plan. It's not even a health care plan, frankly. A 64-year-old would get a $13,000 increase. God damn! What did old people ever do to Paul Ryan? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man whose second not-a-Muslim ban has been blocked by the federal courts, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And I'm here with my Slate colleague, Jamel Bowie, in our Washington, D.C. studio with a guest we both want to talk to. He's Ezra Klein of Vox, and he's here to talk to us about the Republicans and healthcare. Ezra, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Ezra is like the wonko de tutti wonky. He is like the master of policy. My teenage daughter thinks he's a rock star. There's something seriously wrong with her, but she does. Anyhow, Ezra wrote an epic piece this week with his colleague, Sarah Cliff, called The Lessons of Obamacare. It's amazingly good, and it leaves you feeling like you actually understand the policy as well as the politics of healthcare. But before we launch into that, I'm not sure if both of you saw Tucker Carlson's Fox News interview with President Trump this week. I thought it had one of those just dead giveaway moments where you understand what it is that Trump really cares about. And let's listen to the clip. Do you talk to anyone before you tweet? And is there anyone in the White House who can say to you, Mr. President, please don't tweet that, who you would listen to? Well, let me tell you about Twitter. I think that maybe I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Twitter because I get such a fake press, such a dishonest press. I mean, if you look at, and I'm not including Fox because I think Fox has been fair to me, but if you look at CNN and if you look at these other networks, uh, NBC, I made a fortune for NBC with The Apprentice. I had a top show where they were doing horribly and I had one of the most successful reality shows of all time. I made, and I was on for 14 seasons. And you see what happened when I'm not on. You saw what happened to the show, it was a disaster. I was on, I was very good to NBC, and I, they are despicable, they're despicable. They're despicable. They're despicable in their coverage. He thinks the networks are ungrateful for all the money he's made them. And that's the core of everything. It is, uh, it is amazing to see what Trump is still preoccupied with, even though he's now president of the United States. 
one thing I, I thought was funny from the interview, and I think it says with segues into our topic pretty well, is that at one point Carlson uh, points out to Trump that his health plan um, would end up burdening the middle and working class counties that voted for him. And Trump uh, looks at Carlson and he kind of just nods and says, oh, I know, I know, <laughs> which is incredible. <laughs> so on that topic, Ezra, um, let's talk about Trump care. Could you perhaps for our listeners kind of just describe what it is and how it differs from the Affordable Care Act? What it is is a great question, actually. <laughs> so the American Health Care Act, uh, it is a bill written, as far as we can tell, literally in the office of Paul Ryan. Uh, it does not it does not really have the committee process behind it, the normal congressional process behind it you would expect. It also, by the way, did not come from the Trump administration. Trump very quickly threw his support behind it. But this is not something that Secretary Tom Price created. It did not come out of the White House. Uh, it, it came out of Ryan Ryan's office, changed a lot right before it dropped and has dropped to a very cold reception from from both liberals and conservatives. The the bill itself is a little bit strangely constructed. They are trying to do something very difficult, which is keep the bill in a particular Senate process called or congressional process, really, called budget reconciliation. The upside of budget reconciliation is it means you can pass something with 51 votes. So you cannot have a Senate filibuster act against reconciliation. The downside of it is that for something to be part of the budget reconciliation process, which is built for budgets, that's why it has that name, it really every every specific provision has to be primarily related to changing spending or taxing. That is the test the parliamentarian applies. And what that's meant is that a lot of what we do in healthcare reform, uh, no matter which side is doing it, is insurance regulation, is saying that insurers can, you know, not do this or they have to do that. You, you're telling private market actors how to run their business. That is not considered material to the budget. That is not something you are doing to change the the taxation or spending of the U.S. federal budget. And so Republicans have had to have a bill that actually does not change the bulk of Obamacare's insurance market regulations. It keeps lifetime limits. It keeps the essential benefits. It keeps tons of things Republicans have been complaining about forever. What it does take away, and, and this is important, is it takes away the individual mandate. And it replaces it with something similar but less effective called continuous coverage, where if you stop having uh, if you stop having insurance, whenever you come back, you get a thirty percent surcharge for one year, which uh, healthcare experts think is going to be a big incentive if you're healthy not to buy insurance until you get sick. So that can make death spirals a lot worse. But then the two really really big things it does, and this is a core of everything. Obamacare has two ways that it subsidizes insurance for people. One is Medicaid. And on the Medicaid side, what the Republican plan does is it allows states to sign up and enroll people in Medicaid until 2020 and then not just freezes that, but if one of those people gets too much money and is off Medicaid for three months or they forget to sign a form, they can't get back on. So it freezes it and then tries to roll it back through total through attrition of the program. But the other thing it does is it cuts the Medicaid program in the long term hugely. I think if I'm remembering the numbers right, by somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight hundred billion dollars. So it, over 10 years, the Congressional Budget Office says that's going to kick 14 million people, 14 million people off of Medicaid. The second thing it does is that Obamacare subsidies in the private market are tied to two things. And people don't always realize this. They know the subsidies are tied to income, which is true, but they're also tied to the cost of a plan in your local area. So the way the subsidy is calculated is we basically, the law basically says, you, Jamel, make X amount of money. 
And we want that to cover Y percentage of a plan wherever you live. And that's really important because the cost of an insurance plan in Washington, D.C. is different than in L.A., is different than in rural Alaska, is is different than in suburban Miami, in the suburbs of Miami. And so you have basically a subsidy structure that really guarantees that if you don't have that much money, you can afford a plan. The Republican plan wipes that out and it moves to just flat age-based credits. You get one amount of money if you're 30 years old, you get another amount of money for 60 years old, a higher amount of money, and it does not matter how much money you make and it does not matter how much a plan near you costs. If that tax credit cannot buy you a plan, you just don't get a plan. So the tax credits are over time about half the value of Obamacare's tax credits in addition to not varying by how much money people make or how much you need to spend to get health insurance. So when you put all this together, the Congressional Budget Office, which are the, the big scorekeepers here. They came out with an estimate of what the plan will do that is as singularly devastating a document as I've ever seen in American politics. They said it would, over 10 years, kick 24 million, 24 million people off of health insurance. That is how many fewer people to have health insurance. 24 million, just to put it in perspective, it's more people than live in New York State. It's more people than live in Australia. We are creating an uninsured <laughs> population the size of Australia. And it's more people than Obamacare covered in the time it's been in place, right? It says closer to 20 million people. No, so the, I think by the end of this period, Obamacare would have been expected to be covering, if I remember, 32 million people. Oh, all right. So because we're, we're projecting out into the future here. But so this is a really bad score. And so on the one hand, you have conservatives who are looking at this plan and they say, hey, this creates a new tax credit based middle class entitlement. Why are we as conservatives voting to give somebody who makes $50,000 a tax credit forever. Um, That's not the government's role. So that's like the Freedom Caucus problem. Then you have what my colleague Andrew Prokop calls the Coverage Caucus, which are – there are Republicans, many of them, who believe – Either that people should be covered or at the very least believe they do not want to be running for election having voted to take coverage away from tens of millions of people. That's your Susan Collins, your Lisa Murkowski's, that group of folks. And so on the one hand, you've got a bunch of Republicans who think this thing is not conservative enough. On the other hand, a bunch of Republicans who think this thing is an insane political suicide mission. And then in the middle of all that, Pretty much every major Republican think tank has come out against this bill because it is just constructed like garbage. It just, <laughs> the thing was not well built. They did not wait for CBO scores. They did not get enough input. They're not running it through a real committee process where it's getting worked on and fixed and evaluated. The whole thing, it, it is so bad that a lot of people have speculated to me that Ryan wants us to fail. Paul Ryan wants it to fail. I do not think that is true, but it is hard to come up with what has created such a slipshod piece of legislation and such a fearful, cowardly, hypocritical, and fundamentally, on a policy level, ineffective process. Well, uh, wow. Um, but <laughs> so that is how I feel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what you really think. Ezra. But isn't, in a way, Trump positioned exactly where he should want to be politically on this? I mean, his line has been consistently, I just want to fix, don't bother me with the details. If this improves through the committee, through the drafting process, and it comes out something he feels he could support, he can get on board. If it doesn't, he can blame it all on Ryan and distance himself from it. Trump is disastrously positioned here because he's not doing what you just said. I think one thing you might have imagined Donald Trump would do is stay a little bit outside of this. He would release vaguely supportive but nevertheless ambivalent uh, statements. I'm interested to see how this bill proceeds. You know, we're going to be taking a close look at it, blah, 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 blah. But that is not what he did. The next morning, the bill came out and he went out and said, this is my bill. 
He went out and said, I support this bill 100%. It's going to be great. It's going to be great health care. He did this again today. There is no way in which he has not bear hugged this bill. He has been calling members of Congress, having them into the White House, trying to persuade them to vote for the bill. He has wrapped his arms around this thing as hard as he possibly can. It's actually – this is something that, that I've written about that you should do uh, maybe a Trump cast on is the degree to which he is not playing an outside-the-system deal maker. He is not waiting mm-hmm. there to arbitrate a deal, to negotiate a better deal. He has taken the first a damn deal Paul Ryan offered him, said, sure, didn't even wait to see what was in it, really, and is now yoked to this thing, whether it, whether it succeeds or fails. The other thing that I just want to say to, to your point, Jacob, is what Trump has said on health care is not that, you know, I'm going to see what happens and I'm going to try to get a better deal and I'm going to figure this out. It is I'm going to cover everybody. I'm going to cover everybody with terrific health care that has lower deductibles and lower co-pays, and you're all going to love it, and nobody's not going to be able to get it because they can't afford it. He has, from the perspective of what he is now supporting, flatly lied. Oh, and he also said, I'm not going to cut Medicaid. Everything he has said, all of which has been said in public, he has – it's unclear a little bit if he knows he has lied, but he has lied. Yeah, and, that's yeah. I mean, that's 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 what's interesting about all this to me because – I think part of the expectation that Trump would have tried to sit outside the process a bit, not hug the legislation, kind of position himself between all sides is a bit of buying into his myth-making about himself, right? That he is someone who's especially savvy or especially capable of, of striking good deals. But there's actually no evidence of that in Trump's career. And so this, to me, looks exactly like what you would expect from Donald Trump. He has offered a deal. He has no basis, really, for knowing how to evaluate it. But he has flattered himself to think he is the kind of person who makes good deals. So he takes it. And now... Having made a bunch of promises for which it's not clear he actually understands what that means practically, he is in, like you said, Ezra, this really horrible political position compounded by the fact that Brian and uh, his allies in Congress didn't bother creating any kind of coalition around this bill. I mean, that to me is what's so striking about it, that for forever, whatever criticisms you want to make of the democratic process and, and crafting and passing the Affordable Care Act, they spent years building coalitions around health reform. Ryan has not done that kind of work and it's apparent and it's why, you know, just as an observer, I'd be kind of shocked if this ends up not just exploding in the face of everyone involved. So, so here's here's an amazing where, yeah. point you, you make here that, that I haven't thought of it quite this way. But when you think of Trump's career, whether or not you think the deals he made were good mm. – the, the the way in which he made deals was not to closely scrutinize the products on which he was putting his name. Right. Donald Trump, who does not drink, did not try a lot of different vodkas before saying this vodka is a vodka fine enough to call Trump vodka. He did not try the world's different steaks before deciding that <laughs> this side of beef is a side of beef that is good enough to carry the Trump name. Basically, if you were willing to give Trump some money to put his name on something, he was going to put his name on it. Socks, vodkas, belt clips, whatever the hell it was, a shitty reality show. And now he's got this healthcare bill and Ryan's like, hey, like I got this healthcare bill. You want to put your name on it? He's like, sure. I would love to put my name on it. Right. But the problem, like with Trump University, is like he did not go and check out like how solid that education was. He just puts his name on things. Sometimes those things blow up. They get him sued. They get him in trouble. And, and Trump care might right. end up being the same it, way. 
But since you guys agree, let me just play devil's advocate or Trump advocate, as we call it on, <laughs> on this show for a minute. First of all, Trump is not held to past positions in an ordinary way, and he doesn't regard them as binding in an ordinary way. So the fact that he endorsed this bill the day it came out will not in any way prevent him from attacking it in two weeks if that's the, if that is the politically advantageous thing to do. And the other point is Trump thinks he's in a position where everything people don't like about healthcare is now the fault of his predecessor. I mean, he's playing the classic, you know, new CEO game of everything that w- that goes wrong is my predecessor's fault and everything you like is because of what I did. And with healthcare, that's maybe a possible, a f- possibly effective dynamic because, of course, there are lots of things people don't like about healthcare. They don't like their copays. They don't like their premiums going up. They don't like the just general increasing costs every year. And until something else happens, and if something never happens, he just says, Obama left us this disaster, and I was not allowed to fix it. So I have a different view on the idea that Trump is in hell to pass positions. This is something where I think that people mistake Donald Trump's unusual placement in politics for some kind of superpower. The reason Trump, I think, is not held to his past the way other players are is he actually in politics doesn't have one. The hard thing for Hillary Clinton is she really did do things. I mean, she really was a secretary of state and really did use an email account in a certain way. She really did have a role in the children's health insurance program. You might like it or you might hate it. She really was a a key policy person in her husband's administration. So she fairly got dinged for things like welfare reform and the crime bill. She had she got held not to past positions, I don't think, but to past results. What Trump was able to do in 2016 was run with no results behind him at all. So he could be anything anybody wanted him to be. Uh, He could say a million things that were different because people, to some degree, don't care that much about what politicians say. I agree that people gave what he said a discount rate, right? They looked at it and said, I'm not sure he believes it, so we'll just see what he does. But that was a crucial part of that sentence. We will see what he does. Um, When my colleague Sarah Cliff went out and talked to a bunch of Trump voters who voted for him but were on Obamacare, they're like, he's not going to take away Obamacare from me. You you see what he does. That ends. Like – Donald Trump's presidency is opening up the box and the cat is either dead or alive, right? When he actually passes a health care bill, if he does, then voters now open the box. And if they suddenly lose health insurance, they're not going to say, oh, well, you know, Trump, we'll see what he does. Th- then they saw. That's it. And so that, I think, is something he is actually not very well prepared for. He does not want to be held to a record. He does not want to be held to account. Right, but doesn't that argue for passing nothing? So if he doesn't pass them, he doesn't take away anybody's benefits under Obamacare, but he can continue to say the things you don't like are the things that I haven't been allowed to change. I agree. I think it would make a lot of sense for Donald Trump to not be trying to pass this bill. I think it would make a lot of sense for him to have not endorsed this bill. I think it would make a lot of sense for him to be – I sort of feel in this – we all agree, actually, on what a good political strategy for Donald Trump would have been. It's just not the political strategy he has chosen. Yeah. And now to the secondary thing you said, which is what if in two weeks he decides this is a disaster and turns on it? You can do that. But holy shit. Right. Will that destroy your relationship with your own party in Congress? Right. That is how you become Jimmy Carter. Right. You blame your own party for something that, in theory, you guys were supposed to be lockstep on. And look, to me, it's a good outcome if Donald Trump can't get anything done, even if that is a little bit better for his polls and getting terrible things done. But it's not a genius political move to endorse a bill, demand your party fall in lockstep behind it, watch the bill blow up, blame your party for blowing (laughs) the bill up, make sure nobody ever follows you again. I mean, I want to be careful. Like Donald Trump lost a popular vote, got into office, and good on him, right? There's a lot about him that is impressive. But it's not all tactical. It's not all strategic genius here. Like these things, they don't work out because they don't work out. 
Right. I mean, I, I think one of the things Trump's win has convinced a lot of people that he exists outside of normal political physics and that he he no longer is subject to the rules of politics. But, you know, as per Ezra, I just don't think that's true. I, I think that if you if you saddle your party with a disastrous piece of legislation that goes up in flames and you're already sort of have a tenuous connection to that party, then you have set yourself up. If Trump does that, that could be it for his administration in a real way, right? Like that's just that's just the game. Well, um, or you'd and you'd better make sure the Republicans in Congress are pretty afraid of you on other stuff. But let's go into the question for a second, Ezra, since you're here, of what an effective conservative healthcare reform might look like. You and your your piece with Sarah remind us that the individual mandate was a conservative idea. It came from the Heritage Foundation. It was the core of the health care reform in Massachusetts. Romney supported it. And a lot of Republicans supported it even into the Obama administration until it became part of Obama's policy when it became poison for them. Couldn't they, now that Obama's no longer associated with it, go back to that as the core of a market-based healthcare solution and just, you know, rebrand it again? They cannot. Um, it might be going to war on a lie, but they went to war on a lie. And then <laughs> once you're at war, you can't change the lie. Thank like you. That, that's, that's the way that goes. Look, Republicans have a real problem on, on healthcare reform. I, I did an interview with a guy named Lonnie Chen, who's at the Hoover Institute. And he was Mitt Romney's policy director during the 2012 campaign. And he, he put this pretty well to me. He said, look, there are three camps of Republicans on healthcare. There are the folks who are sort of in the same general goal set as Democrats, right? What they want to do is increase coverage and decrease cost, but they want to do it in more market-oriented ways than Democrats, right? That, that's that's one camp. That's the camp you're talking about here, the camp where Stuart Butler, who, by the way, is the guy who came up with that bill at Heritage, but now Stuart is at Brookings, right? Like the, the, that part of the party has been seriously eroded in, in these years. But so so there you have the folks who might be able to to – come together on a, on a plan like that. Then you have group two. Group two is maybe where you would put Paul Ryan, actually. Group two says, yeah, doing healthcare reform is important, but the only thing that matters is cost. The only thing we want to do, and you can argue whether what they're going to do here is effective. I don't really think it is. But the only thing that matters here is cost and actually coverage for Republicans is a mugs game because there's no Republican plan that will ever beat progressive alternatives on coverage. Like progressives are willing to tax rich people to directly buy health insurance for poor people. And if you're not willing to do as much of that as they are, then you're just always going to lose coverage. Coverage is not the right metric. Just worry about cost and worry about creating a really well-functioning market for health insurance services. And then over time, the market will work and everybody probably will get covered that way anyway. So that's group two. That's your sort of Paul Ryan's who say, it doesn't matter if it's those 24 million people off of health insurance, we're going to bring costs down something, something. Again, I don't buy this as policy, but that's the argument. Then there's group three which is the government should just not be involved in this at all. Um, this is just not appropriate for the government. The government should not be structuring insurance markets. The government should not be giving people tax credits. It should just be doing none of that. And the important thing to do is to pull as much government involvement back as you can. The kind of and libertarian default. The libertarian default. And, and the reason I bring up these three things is that this is why Republican health care programs never really get off the ground. Democrats, whether you are Bernie Sanders on the one hand or Joe Manchin on the other, Right, The whole spectrum of the Democratic Party fundamentally thinks what you should do is tax rich people 
to give health insurance to poor people. They're all on board for that basic agreement. Now they disagree on should the government be doing it, right? There are a lot of – should there be a public option? How much should you tax rich people? How generous should the subsidies be? Do you have to pay for – like healthcare is hard. There are a lot of – even when you agree on goals, there's a lot of secondary questions to deal with. But they agree on goals. Republicans do not agree on goals. And Obamacare, repeal and replace, obscured that for seven years. For seven years, Republicans agreed on the goal or what sounded to them like a goal of repeal and replace Obamacare. But what they got wrong, I think, in that is that's not a goal. It's a slogan. It's a slogan that is meant to serve a goal, which is repeal and replace with the thing that is better. And they never agreed on that goal. And so now all of that is breaking right back open. Uh, they just did not do the hard work of this, which Democrats had been doing for years before Obama was ever elected to get not only on the same page on goals, but on the same page on relatively on the same page on means. There's just none of that in, in the Republican circles. So any I can come up with lots of things that would make a, you know, to possibly a Lonnie Chen happy. But I cannot come up with one that would make Republicans happy because there is no one Republican party on health care reform. Jamel Bowie and I have been speaking to Ezra Klein of Vox. You can read his latest piece, The Lessons of Obamacare, which he wrote with Sarah Cliff on Vox this week. Ezra, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And can I plug my podcast before we leave? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you enjoy this wonky talk, you should listen to The Weeds, another fine panoply podcast where Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff and I do this all the time every week. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. And hey, a few things before we wrap up today. First, an announcement. Slate is hiring a politics editor. You know what one of the best parts of this job is? You get to work with Jamel Bowie. You also could direct some of the best political reporters and writers in the business during what we would have to say is one of the most tumultuous moments in American history. If you're interested and have at least five years of experience covering American politics, send a cover letter and resume to politicseditor at slate.com. And to learn more about the job and the requirements, you can go to slate.com slash politicseditor. I also want to announce our second book, for the Trumpcast Book Club. We had such a good time talking about the plot against America that Philip Gravich and Katie Royfe are coming back to talk about Herman Melville's The Confidence Man. This is a book I've been wanting to read for a long time. I keep hearing people, very literate people, talking about how relevant it is to understanding Trump. So we're going to be doing that sometime in April. You can get it at a local bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. I think it's only 99 cents because it's in the public domain. You can get a copy for free if you want. But whatever you do, read it and join us in April for a deep dive into this classic American satire and what it tells us about the president today. And Jamel, I think you're going to start a Trumpcast movie club, right? That's right. Books are terrible, but movies are great. Um, so next month, uh, we're going to begin this Trumpcast movie club with two selections that are a bit more low culture than The Confidence Man, but I think are still very perceptive about the United States and about the Trump era and the confluence of militarism and corporatism and so on and so forth. Those movies are Paul Verhoeven's Robocop and Starship Troopers. Um, released roughly 10 years apart, still very watchable. 
and again, very informative and instructive about our present moment. So uh, you can catch those, uh, not on Netflix, I don't believe, but you can rent them on iTunes, you can find them on Amazon, and you should give them a watch. They're both fun, enjoyable popcorn flicks, and then we will talk about them next month. And one last thing, have you recommended one of your favorite podcasts to a friend or family member yet? If you haven't, use the hashtag TRYPOD, that's T-R-Y, pod, and let people know what you're listening to. Ezra, who was here, would be very happy if you recommended The Weeds, or maybe it's something else. But get one of your friends, subscribe to one of your favorite shows, and show them how to do it if they don't know. And don't forget to use the hashtag TRYPOD. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening to Drumcast. Drumcast.